Okay, we're going to get going here. So we're going to talk about the market gardening model. And, and what I want to say off the, off the, at the start is that I'm not saying this is the only model out there. You know, there are other people who are doing it on much larger scales with tractors and everything and doing it very successfully. So, you know, if that's, if you're more inclined to that, go for it. In fact, I'll just put in a little plug. There's, there's a track um, tomorrow and Friday. I forget what the name of the track is, but the Johnson family, Brad and Judy Johnson from California, they, there's, I think there'll be some overlap with this, but you know, because it's different people in a different location, I would encourage you all, if you're serious about market gardening, to go to their presentations. Um, but they're doing it on a much bigger scale, you know, California scale. Um, I mean, they're not like big California scale, but compared to most of the rest of us, it's big. They do vegetables, they do some, they do walnuts and some other tree fruits, and they're, they're more diversified than we are. So anyway, my point is, I'm not trying to say everybody needs to follow this, but I love the market gardening model for a number of reasons. Well, I think I'll explain them pretty much as we go through here. <coughs> so what is a market garden? Um, and these, you know, there's no dictionary definitions. So this is kind of um, what, what people have come to less than three acre, acres of cultivated land and I would say most of them are an acre and a half or less. So very intensive, very small, um, characterized by intensive beds and multiple crops per bed per year. You know, this is really, um, this is not just growing a crop in the summertime. This is multiple crops. Take advantage of season extension and often goes year round. You know, that's kind of the, if you want to call it the cutting edge of small farming is, is season extension using hoop houses and other ways to, and, and again, Elliot Coleman pioneered this. He has a book called The Winter Harvest Handbook. It's really about all there is out there on winter growing. <coughs> but he's in Maine growing in unheated greenhouses um, year round. So his point is, if I can do it, you can do it. And um, that's, that's kind of an exciting new, you know, and we're growing year round. Of course, we're in Tennessee. Elliot Coleman, yes. Yeah, and again, we have the resource back there. It's in my handout. Um, usually very diverse, you know, um, bigger farms tend to be more focused on fewer crops because you have to buy specialized equipment for, you know, planting corn and harvesting corn and all of this. But market gardens are, are generally much more diverse. Okay, here we go. So these are some advantages that I see. <coughs> Nick, my son-in-law, recently got a drone, so he's getting all these cool shots that um, 
That's our farm from a few hundred feet up, or part of our farm. Less land needed. You know, um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, the chapter in Ministry of Healing on um, helping the, what is it, homeless and unemployed, something like that. Um, you know, she talks about how we need to be bringing people out of the city and putting them on the land and teaching them how to farm. But, you know, people say, well, I can't afford a farm. Well, but can you afford two acres, three acres, you know, for a house and, and a little bit of other? And I mean, most people could afford a few acres of land. Um, so to me, one of the biggest things about the market gardening model is it can be easily replicated. And that's what to me is exciting. I wanna, you know, that's why I'm excited about this because if we can get some of you enthused about, you know, I can do this, an acre and a half, um, less water needed, you know, you can get by with, with a much smaller water source, obviously, if you're not irrigating acres and acres. Less equipment needed. You know, you don't need a tractor for an acre and a half. Now, I would say if you're going much above an acre and a half, a tractor is a really nice thing to have. But again, Ben Hartman is incorporating and others are beginning to incorporate tractors into this intensive market gardening model. And to me, that's really exciting. Um, less stress. You know, our, our farms or our gardens should be a place you love to be. And I know all of you who've done this have had the experience of the garden getting out of control. And what happens when it gets out of control? You don't wanna be out there, right? Because it's depressing. And so it's this vicious cycle and you know it goes to pot and then it's like okay well next year we're going to do better right i mean that's kind of the classic august comes and you know the garden's taken over by weeds um and it's it's like okay well let's mow it down and we'll try again next year um, but the point is by doing less you can do better at it and um, hopefully be much less stressed so I, I talked about this, more people can, <coughs> can make a living off the land. You know, there should be thousands where now there are a few. You know, I, my vision is to see hundreds and thousands of Adventist families doing this. I think it could be an incredible, um, incredible witness. Okay, so these are some keys to success as I see it with market gardening. One is the intensive production. We mentioned that. <coughs> Again, you, you know, you're talking about tight spacing. We're doing, um, we do a lot of carrots for winter growing, 12 rows to a 30 inch wide bed. That's pretty intensive spacing. Um, so you're, you're just tightening everything up. And of course, that means you have to have some good fertility going there. Otherwise, you're not going to support that kind of growth. But the intensive spacing also um, 
it helps with weeds. You know, it crowds the weeds out. I can't even read this now. Beds rather than rows. <coughs> um, again, because, you know, rows were designed back first, I guess, with horses and then tractors. You know, they're designed for mechanical cultivation. But um, when you're doing mostly hand cultivation, and of course you can use like wheel hose and stuff, but you're able to tighten everything up and get a lot more on less area. <coughs> High value crops, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but um, you know, most market gardens do not grow sweet corn. That's kind of a classic example because sweet corn, even at good yields, you know, you'd be doing good to make 10,000 an acre. And, you know, you're, you're trying to grow crops which are, you know, 100,000 or more per acre. Now, I will say we, we do grow some sweet corn because we've got a CSA and we want to keep our CSA customers happy. We'll talk about that later. But um, you don't do it for the money. I mean, it's great. It's easy to sell, right? Everybody loves good sweet corn. But, you know, we're selling it. We'll sell it for a dollar an ear at, for early sweet corn. Um, but still, that's not enough to justify the land used. Um, okay, highly fertile soil. You know, again, um, if you're growing this intensively, you've got to really stay on top of your soil fertility. So you're not at one of the soil fertility sessions since you're here. So make sure you listen to those on Audioverse because it's really important. Um, get soil tested, amend as recommended, grow cover crops. Now, um, <coughs> I will say that most of these market gardens are growing intensively enough that they don't have time to fool with cover crops. Um, so they are just bypassing the cover crops and using more compost and stuff, which can get you into trouble if you're not careful. Um, we, we kind of went down that road, you know, we composted so much that we start getting our soil out of balance. But the point is you, you do need some organic matter. And so um, Connor Crickmore, um, I'm trying to decide whether to talk about some of these things now or save them for later, but he, he has kind of taken a two-pronged approach to soil fertility. He, he does extensive testing of his beds and amends to the recommendations of the soil testing. But then he also looks at what he calls the tilth or you know the, the look and feel of the soil. And he'll amend with either compost or he uses a lot of peat moss just to, to make it have the right look and feel. So he kind of does both and, and I, I kind of like that approach. Um, okay, make compost. Now, um, making compost can, can be a big job, 
and a lot of these farms are buying it in. But there are some, Ben Hartman makes compost on a very large scale and uses it copiously on his farm. Season extension, we talked about that. You know, the simplest season extension is floating row covers. If you don't know about floating row covers, you know, that's kind of, you need to know about floating row covers. Um, it's amazing what just s simple row covers can do. And then if you start doubling them up or tripling them up, um, you, can, you can take crops way out of season. Now, and, and when I say that, I'm not talking about growing tomatoes year-round. You know, take my word for it. Don't go down that road. Um, you know, it's great to, to try to extend the season, start your tomatoes earlier. You know, we plant our tomatoes in our hoop house the middle of March, and we finally pulled them out the middle of November just because we needed the space, but they were just going gangbusters. I mean, we had, they had so many tomatoes on them, <coughs> but we needed to plant winter stuff there. So anyway, you can do a lot with extending the season, but hoop houses are to, to modify the climate, not to turn it into the Bahamas in there, you know. Um, transplants, again, we don't have time to talk about a lot of these things, but the best way to maximize your space on your farm is using transplants. And most all these farms, you know, I mean, we transplant beets, we transplant spinach, um, you know, crops that classically aren't transplanted. I'm trying to think of some other ones that, you know, we've transplanted turnips before, Hakurite turnips. Um, so, the point is with transplant, I mean, there's so many advantages, but you know, you can have your lettuce a month old in transplants that as soon as you clear out a bed, you plant that and you've just added a month to your crop. Does that make sense? Um, so it's a very efficient way to use your space. The only things we don't transplant our um, salad mix, you know, uh, baby stuff, um, carrots, we, and um, we do some green beans. So there, there's just a handful of crops that we still direct seed, but again, transplanting is much more efficient. This button works half the time at least. So Again, as I mentioned earlier, the key is getting efficient. You know, anybody who works at a manual trade, you know, we've, I've got friends who are, you know, wood floor layers or whatever, they make their money by speed, right? And, and it's no different in market gardening. And I'm not a good one to talk about this because I'm not fast and I realize that I'm, I'm too much of that OCD, you know. It, I'm trying to 
anyway, but but I have a son who's very fast and so he's a good compliment to me. But but really that's that's how you're going to make money at market farming is getting your systems down. And that's why, you know, we took this tour to try to learn from these guys how to be more efficient. Um, specialized tools, you know, and again, so, you know, Connor Crickmore, he puts out $3,000 to get set up with paper pots, but, you know, then he's, he's just, you know, almost running down the rows transplanting so, you know, we're talking about investing in efficiency. Um, now, this is a big one, functional layout, standardization of space and materials. <coughs> My wife mentioned that this last year, you know, we were, we had our intensive bed areas where we had the movable hoop houses and stuff, but then we also had because we already had a tractor, we've got enough land, we need a tractor anyway. We were doing larger fields, half acre fields, um, and, and doing it more on a tractor layout, five foot centers and so on. But, um, you know, it takes a lot of row cover to cover a half acre. And, um, you know, it's a lot of work. The row cover is big enough that it takes three or four people to pull it out of the field. And there's just a lot of things that become very inefficient. So this last year we were influenced. Well, I, I give credit to my wife because she went to a JM seminar with us and and she said, well, why aren't we doing smaller plots? And, you know, I told her all the reasons why we weren't. And, but it got me thinking. And, and so this last year, we made all our field plots 40 by 100 feet. And I really like that size for many reasons. Um, it's basically a tenth of an acre. So it makes figuring very simple your math you know you can do it all in your head it's it's a tenth of an acre or four thousand square feet so again it's easy to multiply up if you have recommendations for a thousand square feet um, or if you have acre recommendations it's easy to divide by 10. so just very efficient for mental math as you're out there beds a hundred feet long which i like because um, JM has standardized the 100-foot measure, and, you know, he does everything by, by you know, his yields and everything are based on, on a 100-foot bed. So you can take his book, and, you know, he'll tell you this is the average yield for this crop on a 100-foot bed, and, you know, just, again, it, it just simplifies the math and everything. And um, 100 feet long is, you know, even, so t there's 10 beds in a 40 by 100 foot section. So again, 10, you know, you can easily do math. You know, if I've got 20 pounds of potatoes per bed, then, you know, I need 200 pounds to plant my 40 by 100 foot thing. So again, that's standardizing. And so then now we can all, we can just buy one size of row cover. You know, we have one size of sprinkler line 
and everything's interchangeable. And that may not sound like a big deal, but it's huge when you're sorting through row covers. Okay, well, which is the one for this size? And, you know, you know they're piled up in the barn. And so just to have one size of everything is hugely more efficient. So we're really excited. And, and of course, the other thing is just mental efficiency. Um, if you go out there and tell an apprentice, you know, can you just, can you hold this half acre? It's like, hold the, the whole thing, you know? Um, half acre, of course, is not big comparatively, but when you're hoeing it, it can seem big. But a 40 by 100 foot section is doable. You know, it's okay, yeah, I can do that. Take me an hour or two, you know, depending on how bad it needs it. Um, work smarter, not harder. Direct sales, this is a key. You know, you're trying to get the m most cents out of every dollar. And, you know, you hear statistics about farmers, you know, the standard row crop farmers are just earning pennies on the dollar comparatively. Um, but you can't afford that. Y you've got to get a dollar out of every dollar, ideally. Um, so you've got to cut out the middlemen um, farmers markets are a great place to start um, and, and we'll be talking about these things more so I'm not going to mention anything CSA um, we love the CSA high-end restaurants are an option okay planning um, is important we'll talk more about that later my clicker is not clicking you know, just thinking about how much do I really need to make and working back from there. And we're going to do a little bit of that later on. Knowing how much you need to plant. You know, most people, and, and I was kind of there, so I, I don't look down on anybody, but most market gardeners, it's like, okay, well, let's just plant a bunch of lettuce and see if we can sell it, you know. That's not the best way to go about things. Know when it needs to be planted. I keep forgetting I can look down here. Have a six, but problem is I can't read it down there. Succession of plantings to keep a continuous harvest. Um, again, you know, this is kind of the difference between a, a home gardener and a market gardener. You know, a home gardener puts the garden in on a nice day in the spring, you know, plants everything. And um, then, you know, stuff peters out over the course of the summer. And well, that's the end of the garden till next year. But, you know, market gardeners, you're planting pretty much all the time, you know. Um, you're planting squash. We plant squash every month, you know. Lettuce, you know, every we, we do lettuce pretty much every week, you know. Um, so a lot of succession planting. I love this quote, always tend the smallest amount of land possible, but tend it exceptionally well. And again, I think Connor Crickmore has kind of taken that 
to a new height. Um, you need at least one full-time worker per half acre, um, at least, I would say, for an intensive market garden. Um, you know, a lot of these market gardeners, it's more like one full-time person per quarter acre. Um, but again, you're, you're looking at income potential of 100,000 or more per acre. You know, let me just mention our farm keeps shrinking. We keep shrinking it. At one time, um, with my brother's family, we were doing almost seven acres. Now we're down to two and a half, and we'd love to shrink it some more. You know, my wife talked about the strawberries. You know, at one time we were we we planted one year we planted twenty four thousand strawberry plants. We're down to this this year we're down to four thousand. That's the fewest we've ever planted. But the amazing thing is, um, we've always made right around the same amount of money. Whether we had twenty four thousand plant last year we had five thousand. We made as much with the 5,000 as we did with the 24,000. Of course, that's a long story. But, but the point is, with less, you're able to do a better job with it. You know, I have high hopes for our strawberries this year because we really amended them well. We got them planted on time. They're, if anything, they're too big, but we'll see. Okay, location. Now, this... this where are we for time? Let's see. 10.30, is that when it ends? Okay, so we're good, I think. You know, you don't want to spend your time on the road, ideally. So, ideally, I think within an hour's drive of a major metropolitan area. The reality is most small towns in America aren't, I don't know what word I should use, aren't progressive enough, is that the right word, to, to support um, a local organic farmer. You know, they're used to buying stuff really cheap, um, but you're looking for high end. And, you know, we make no apologies about that. We, we tell people, you know, we couldn't afford to buy our own stuff. You know, that's why we grow it. Um, we eat like kings and queens. Have you heard of that before? Um, so if you can't afford our stuff, we'll, we'll teach you how to grow it yourself. Is that fair enough? But if you don't want to take time to grow it yourself, then we're going to charge you through the nose. Uh, I mean, hopefully not quite that bad. But Connor Crickmore, this was great. He said, you want... Oh, I, I, I don't want to misquote him, but he, he was talking about pricing. He said, you, you want them to be complaining as they take their wallet out of their pocket. Um, so that's his philosophy. You want it to hurt. It, you price stuff high enough that it hurts, but not quite so much that they don't buy it. It's like, man, this is really pricey but it looks so good you know so that's kind of where he's at and I'm not suggesting that's necessarily where you want to be but um, 
don't be afraid to charge really good prices for your stuff because your stuff should be much better than anything out there you know and we tell people you know people we constantly get people saying how come your strawberries are so much better than anybody else's we say well we pray over them um, other than that we're not sure what to tell you but um, everybody knows our strawberries are the best at the market even though the other growers are using the same variety um, why is that God's blessing I you know um, and we try to to give the glory to the Lord because that's where it belongs and it's a witness anyway so um, the closer well you, you don't want to be too close to the city right but um, where the Lord has given us an ideal location we're basically an hour from downtown Nashville and so we have a wonderful market um, if you you know we don't all have the luxury of choosing where we're at um, notice I said if growing perishables there's a young man here I don't see him here but Jared Westbrook from New Mexico he's focused on garlic because they live three hours from the nearest metropolitan area um, and garlic is pretty non-perishable so you know you can get creative but if you're going to market every week you don't want to be driving three hours to market at least I don't now there are a lot of farmers up in the the New England area that drive three or four hours to to New York for markets good water source is extremely important I I can't overemphasize that um, you know we live in a a world that is waxing old <coughs> and um, I would never get into market gardening if I didn't have a good way to irrigate now I don't know is that lack of trust I don't know uh, now I would say this if if you feel the Lord calling you into this and he's calling you without giving you the resources to set up a good irrigation system um, you know I I would say follow the Lord and trust him but um, you know he does give us a head to use and and we want to use it wisely good sun exposure you know some of these hopefully are obvious but you, you do want to check the sun year-round so you you don't want especially if you're going to grow year-round you don't want to be in a shady place good soil is ideal but again the beauty of a market garden scale is you can make good soil you know Elliot Coleman Connor Crickmore these guys started out with horrible soil and they've made good soil which you can afford to do on a small scale, but you can't afford to do it on acres, you know, large acreage. Fairly level is ideal. You, you have to be careful about erosion. Um, you know, of course, there's ways to deal with this. You, all over the world, they terrace hillsides and stuff. So, you know, with work, um, anything can be done, but... <coughs> 
the the more of these you start out with, the the easier it's going to be to get into it. Um, we highly recommend 30-inch wide beds. That's kind of become a standard, and there's a lot of tools and stuff that are designed for the 30-inch wide system. It's, it's easy to straddle. You can straddle it, lean over, and transplant or harvest. Or you can, you know, if you're squatting, you can reach across it. So it's really just a, a good fit for most people. And I talked about the 100 foot long. Again, um, your layout may not work with 100 foot. There's nothing magical about 100 feet, but it is a nice, if, if you can do it, I, I think it's a nice size. Uh, but do it 50 feet, you know, and then you just divide by two. Pathways, there's, there's some variants in pathways. Elliot uses 12 inch wide pathways. But Elliot's a very small man. Um, JM uses 18 inch wide pathways. Connor Crickmore, I think, had settled on 15 inch wide. So there's, there's a little variation there. I would say it depends largely on how much land you have. You know, how mo a lot of people are doing 12 inch pathways in hoop houses because that's your most valuable space. Um, but in the field, um, it varies some. The point is, <coughs> excuse me, the point is you don't want to spend your time cultivating pathways. So you don't want any more pathway than you absolutely need. Curtis Stone has like eight inch wide pathways. You know, he has to put his feet, you know, one in front of the other, you know, it's, it's just super narrow. But again, he's doing super intensive. Um, I kind of talked about some of this, uh, you know, we really like our 40 by 100 foot. And it's interesting that JM on this new farm he's working on has standardized on the 40 by 100 foot um, size. Like I said, he's got 50 of those plots. High value crops. Now, this is something that Curtis Stone has introduced, which is kind of a neat um, way to, to measure the value of a crop. He's got this CVR crop value rating, and it's based on five things. Short days to maturity, um, 60 days or less, you know, this is, this is just good common sense. And, you know, we were trying to do this before we read about Curtis. But, you know, if you've got two potato varieties, you know, of course, anybody who's grown potatoes, you have early potatoes and mid-season and late, right? They usually divide it into those three. And, you know, late potatoes can be 120 days or more. Um, why would you grow a 120-day potato if you can grow a 80-day potato? You know, that's just taking up more space in your garden for a longer period of time, which means there's more time for pests and diseases to, to you know, it, it just makes sense to look for shorter days to maturity. Um, so he, he shoots for 60 or less, or let me say this, each of these gets one point. 
So if it's uh, 60 days or less to maturity, he gives it a point. High yield per linear foot. Um, and this is a 30-inch wide bed, but at least half a pound. And this is mainly talking about greens, but, you know, half a pound per foot, linear foot. So that's two and a half feet wide and a foot long. Um, so if, if it yields that much, gets another point. High price per pound, minimum $4 a pound. So again, you know, the, these are high value crops. This is all in his book, The Urban Farmer. <clears throat> Long harvest period, four months or more. Now, there's two ways that this can be. You know, you can have a crop like tomatoes, which can go for four months or more. Or you can have a crop like radishes, which has a, a season that's four months or more. Does that make sense? So it can either be one crop for four months or more or multiple crops that can be replanted over and over again. And then popularity, high demand, low market saturation. You know, the, the highest value crops like microgreens, you know, if, if, if the market's saturated, you're wasting your time growing them. So you've got to try to, to find those niches where it's high value, but the market's not saturated. So those are his five points. And so if you have a CVR of five over five, then that's a crop that meets all these criteria. So here's a few examples. Arugula, five over five. Let's just look at the lettuce, five over five, spinach, five over five, turnips. Th those are, you know, we're talking about salad turnips, the, the gourmet kind of turnips. Um, baby kale, five over five. Then you have some that um, microgreens, radishes, kale, carrots, beets, are all four over five. So, you know, one of them, you know, like carrots, it's hard to get a carrot with less than 60 days maturity. They're gonna tend to be a little longer than that. <coughs> so that wouldn't meet that one criteria, but you get a good price on carrots um, and so on. So does that make sense to you? So according to Curtis Stone, these are, and, and he only grows um, like, well, what do we have here? This is 12. He has a few more things listed like herbs. Herbs are a big seller. Uh, Connor Crickmore does a lot of herbs and um, some flowers as well, but selling to restaurants and stuff, fresh herbs are big. So anyway, he does, I, I guess he does probably 15 different crops, but he's focusing on these super high value crops. Okay, how are we? Now, what do you need for a, a market garden? Um, it's really helpful to have a heated greenhouse for seed starting to get you a good jump. You know, for us, 
spring is by far the biggest season of the year. You know, everybody's just tired of winter and they want fresh stuff. And you know, if you can be the first to market with things, you've got a wide open market. Um, so we really try to start think. you know, as soon as we get back from this conference, we'll do our first big seeding, first of February, um, with stuff that will go in hoop houses, you know, brassicas, um, lettuce, all those things. It's too early for us to be planting outside the 1st of March, but um, we can plant it all in hoop houses and then we'll do another big seeding the 1st of March and plant that outside the 1st of April. That's Tennessee, six, I don't know, you know, zones are changing, but 6B, seven, somewhere right in there. Um, so we have a 30 by 60 heated hoop house, greenhouse, double plastic. If you're going to heat it, you want double plastic. That's probably a little bigger than you need. But part of it, we have a cement pad where we do our soil blocking and everything. Um, it's a very nice size. I mean, we like it, but you wouldn't have to go quite that big if you're just doing an acre and a half. Washing area is really nice, you know, cement slab with roof and three-base sink or feed troughs or, you know, just an area. If you're going year-round, it's nice to have it enclosed so it can be heated to some degree. But many people start out with just a simple roof over a... Uh, you know, and you may not even be able to start with a concrete slab, but some gravel or something, you don't want to be working in the mud. But um, that's nice. I mean, you need a place to wash your stuff. People don't want to buy dirty stuff. We've learned that. Uh, the reason we've learned that is because some of our competition has the philosophy that they just pull it out of the ground and put it in the CSA and you know, the, the really, there are those people who, oh, wow, this is so cool. It's still got dirt on it, you know. But that's the minority. Most people really appreciate nicely washed stuff. Walk-in cooler, you know, if, if you're growing, this is one advantage of winter growing. You don't need this so much. But if you're growing in the summer, it really is helpful to have a cooler because then you don't have to harvest everything the same day that you're taking it to market. And there are ways to do coolers. Uh, have you heard of the CoolBot? It's, uh, it's a little gizmo, a few hundred dollars that will turn an air conditioner, a window air conditioner into a cooler that will keep things down in the 30s. It's called CoolBot. My son sells it on his website, but C-O-O-L dash, I think, B-O-T. Hoop house or two or three. I, I tell people, you know, once you start growing in hoop houses, you're going to be spoiled um, because things just grow so much better in them. It's a way to um, weatherize your farm. You know, without a hoop house, um, what do you do when it's raining? You know, sit inside, just 
pacing back and forth because you know you need to be outside. But as soon as you start having hoop houses, um, when the rains come, well, this is hoop house day. We weed, we plant, we amend, whatever. So it's really, I don't, I've, I've never heard of anybody who says they have too many hoop houses. Again, talking about water, you know, I can't overemphasize that. Not only do you need water for irrigating, but also for washing your produce. We're super blessed in that area. We've got gravity flow water. Um, deer fencing, um, you know, deer can do a lot of damage in one night. And we have, I was trying to think if we talk about it anywhere else, but I think I'll mention it here. We, we use what's called 10X Centiflex. It's the black mesh deer fencing, seven and a half feet tall. Um, we do it very simply, and I don't know why I haven't convinced everybody of this, because to me it's just the best way to go. We use eight-foot T-posts every 25 feet, so, I mean, you don't need very many T. I need 12 T-posts for a 40 by 100-foot area, and I just buy those yellow plastic fence insulators that clip on, you know, for an electric fence, put one on the top of each T-post and literally just hang the fencing from that. The fencing seven and a half feet tall, your T-post when you pound it in is gonna be seven feet tall. So it, it's gonna come down and go out a little bit on the bottom, but we have never in 18 years have never had deer penetrate that. Um, they, they have a hard time seeing it. You know, some places call it invisible deer fence because you get 50 feet away and you can't really even see it. But somehow it kind of, I don't know, it just does a very effective job for us. Now, anytime we've left it open, um, or, you know, sometimes we'll lift it up and hook it over the top if we're weed eating under it or something. If you forget to put it down, they will get in. So that tells you they're around. I mean, they're out there every night. But just that simple barrier has been 100% effective for us. And um, so rather than a permanent fence around your whole farm, which can be very expensive, and then it's also high maintenance, we only fence the crops that we know the deer really like. You know, in the summer, sweet potatoes, green beans, they love beets and Swiss chard. Um, spinach, of course, you know, the same families, Swiss chard and spinach and beets are all in the same family. Um, what else? Strawberries, they love strawberry plants. Um, that's the main things I can think of that we fence and everything else, you know, they may nibble on it a little bit, but we've never had problems with them getting into our brassicas in a big way or tomatoes or any of those kind of things. Question? No, no. And that's the beauty of it. 
you know, we put the strawberries in, erect the fence, you know, for a 40 by 100 foot plot, you know, it could probably do it in 30 minutes. Just roll it out, hook it up, and you're good to go. Um, then you can weed eat under it by just lifting it up. And, and then at the end of the strawberry season, you take it down, roll it up. And so it, it's, it's worked wonderful for us. I, you know, I can't tell you how it's going to work for you, but it's called 10X Centiflex. Um, it's sold in a number of places. There's, I think, Deer Buster's website, but look around. I actually, we just bought some new stuff this year, and I actually found the best deal was from Home Depot. They didn't have it in stock, but they ordered it in. Um, as far as pricing, it, it comes standard in a 330-foot roll, and I think it was 280-some dollars for 300, so less than a dollar a foot, which for fencing is cheap. And, um, and the beauty is it will last many, many years. You know, we're, I think we still have some original stuff, which is close to 18 years old. Okay, I think this is, oh boy, I guess it's not. Specialized equipment, broad fork. There's a picture of a broad fork. BCS um, with attachments, JM really, J, I mean, BCS ought to be paying JM because he has, um, <laughs> he has a sold a lot of BCSs from his book. And speaking of that, Richard Daly should be here today. He's a BCS dealer, so he will have equipment here you can look at. Um, again, I talked about a small tractor. If you need a tractor, you know, if you have more than 10 acres or even more than five acres, you're probably going to need a tractor. So set up your system. You know, don't work harder than you have to. Um, wheel hose are wonderful. I've got some handouts on some of these things that I, I'll try to figure out what, what the problem is with downloading those. And I just may print out some for you all. Precision seeders, the greens harvester. Okay, this is my last slide. How much is it going to cost you? Well, um, you know, that's, that's kind of a loaded question. It just depends on how quickly you want to get up and going. Um, you know, the worst thing you can do is have a lot of money without a lot of knowledge because then you end up wasting a lot of money. It's better to only add equipment and stuff as you know that you really need it. Um, Elliot Coleman in 95 in the New Organic Grower is estimating around 15,000. Um, JM says more like 40,000. So I would say somewhere between there is probably um, realistic. Obviously, if you have the knowledge, the more money you can invest in it, the quicker you can get up and going. But again, don't be investing money without the knowledge to get a return on it quickly. Um, 
and then I say, whatever God gives you. Again, you know, I believe this needs to be a calling, not just, wow, this looks like a good way to earn a living. I'll tell you, it's a hard way to learn a, earn a living. Um, it's hard work. Don't ever think that, you know, you see the pictures and the pictures all look idyllic, right? But the pictures don't show the sweat soaking you through to your skin, you know, in the summer. And they don't show you out there in the winter, you know, your hands are just numb and hurting because you're, but hey, that's all character building, right? And that's what we're about here. So I guess we're actually out of time. We'll take a couple questions. Okay, good point. And I don't know what the current state of that is, but the NRCS, that's the National Resource Conservation Service, um, has for years been giving money to small farmers for hoop houses. We, we got a hoop house through that. So definitely check into it. And there's money available for other things as well. <coughs> so yeah, that's a great resource. And check, check your, your local states. Our state has the Tennessee Agricultural Enhancement Program. We have gotten a lot of money through that for building hoop houses, buying equipment. Um, it's a matching grant you know 50 50 but you just you write a proposal they're trying to encourage small farms um, so there is money available and i know some people have issues with you know uh, do i want to get involved in that um, you know, obviously you want to read the fine print and make sure they're not going to take over your farm or something but you know, I read some quotes to Mrs. White some years ago that really changed my thinking on that. And basically, to paraphrase, she just said, you know, we need to be get whatever money we can get from whoever, because that money's not going to do anybody any good at some point soon. So you know, if we can get that money to be furthering the Lord's work, go for it. That's my paraphrase. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.